Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. In today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Easterway. Rob is one of the leading promoters of mathematics in the UK, as well as an author, keynote speaker, and is director of Maths Inspiration, which is a national programme of interactive lecture shows in theatres that has reached around 200,000 teenagers in the last 15 years. In 2017, Rob was awarded the prestigious Zeeman Medal, which is awarded every two years by the Institute of Mathematics and London Mathematical Society for excellence in the promotion of maths. Rob has a new book coming out in October, which is a collection of maths puzzles from the New Scientist magazine, which I'm really looking forward to read. Hello and welcome to the show, Rob. Hello. Uh, Love to be on. Rob, before we talk about mathematics and your current work, please could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your life's journey and how you decided to become or how you became interested in maths? Um, yeah, I was one of those lucky people who uh, from early childhood just was comfortable with numbers. So I don't remember ever needing to be persuaded to like maths. I just liked uh particularly liked arithmetic as a young kid and I was really good at it so so all of that was was a great start but I think what I was really interested in you know as a as a kid was puzzles I was lucky enough to have a teacher who used to set us puzzles when we were about 10 uh, my dad used to do it as well and those are the sort of maths that I really liked and I like games as well uh, through my teens any any sort of board game that involved rolling dice and so on so I was kind of well set up um and and then I had a, a very quirky thing happened to me when I was about 15 which was I discovered that the Sunday Times had a puzzle column every week and I started trying to solve uh these puzzles and um uh, and and I used to write them up uh, and my dad came passed me writing at the table one day and said oh did you write that puzzle and I, I said well no I just I just copied one out from the from the Sunday Times but it made me think wow he thought I might have actually written a puzzle I wonder if I could write a puzzle um and um as a huge cricket fan I used to watch the cricket all the time and one day I was watching a test match and the numbers on the scoreboard were kind of interesting they were all the same digit repeated and one of them was a multiple of another and I thought I'll make a puzzle up about this and I sent it to the Sunday Times and amazingly I was what 15 16 Sunday Times wrote back and said we'd like to publish your puzzle so oh wow I had this huge breakthrough um and um and then I got into writing puzzles at a sort of precocious 17 18 year old for new scientists for a couple of years as well so yeah. it sort of launched me into a very different maths related career and so you know that was in the on the side and I went on and did my degree a degree in engineering actually because I like the applied side of maths um and um uh, I spent a few years working applying maths in the sort of world of management consultancy so I was at at, uh, a firm called Deloitte's pretty famous now um and um I uh I spent some time there, but I was never really set to be in the corporate world. And and I finally decided to go freelance. And and my career since then has really been a combination of, you know, it's, it started working with adults, uh, you know, and professionals on creative problem solving, but always with a sort of 
puzzly mathematical angle to it. And finally, um, again, a lucky break, a friend of mine said, how about us writing a book about maths together, the kind of things we used to talk about at lunch back in our Deloitte's days. And um, we wrote a book in 1998 called Why Do Buses Come in Threes? We thought, wouldn't it be great if this sells a few hundred copies? And it ended up as a bestseller. It um, it just was the best-selling maths book in various categories for two or three years. It was the Science Museum number one book for five years, which was just incredible. Every time I go into the Science Museum bookshop, I thought, I wonder if we're still there. We were, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, all these things and everything else that's happened really came as a result of, um, you know, those those two two breaks but i got myself involved in the whole area of popularizing maths and and you know going into schools and talking to children of all ages and you know older teenagers who often want to know why am i learning this and you know is yeah. is there any point to this other than passing an exam so really that's been the sort of undercurrent of so much i've done for the last 25 years yeah, no, no, it's really, really interesting. And obviously, um, to, to get that award that I mentioned earlier on, the Zeeman Medal, um, I mean, that's a, that's a prestigious award. To, to You must have felt great about that. Oh, absolutely fabulous. I mean, I've got, I've got it sitting here. There's, you know, have a medal. I kind of, yeah, that's it. I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah I, was, I was delighted about that, not least because, you know, I've got some great peers in this in this field. You know, 30 years ago, if people were saying, oh, who who um who's out there talking about maths? It would have been Carol Vorderman and Johnny Ball. That was it. Uh, today, there's dozens of of people um, uh, who are at the top end of promoting maths, communicating it. It's um, people like David Spiegelhalter, Matt Parker has millions of followers on on YouTube, and I could go. Hannah Fry has become a massive celebrity, and she's a mathematician. And uh, uh, you know, it's a great world to be in, and a great honour to have been honoured. Yeah. I mean, I have to say from my own point of view, I mean, I, I was pretty good at maths at school to start with. Um, and I, I remember coming joint first in the class once mm-hmm. um, in, in the first or second year of the senior school. But then we started doing things like trigonometry and algebra. And I always found that um, the speed at which it was taught didn't really give me enough time to sort of comprehend what I'd already learned. And, and I just found myself out, out, of, um, out of my depth. And I think a lot of people do. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because what 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 is maths? You know, there's this this whole notion. It's back in the news this year in the UK, where the prime minister says we want everyone to do maths to eighteen. And most people, well, they're, they're, there's a mixed sense of what maths is, uh, yeah. but in the general public, and what most people think about what they're going to need is very often numeracy and arithmetic. It's pretty basic stuff, um, and, and often. People are quite good at that. And then the stuff you talk about, the trigonometry and the more abstract stuff, they find harder. But, you know, what is maths? Is it that or is it uh, dealing with your, uh, you know, your phone bill or is it, you know, something else? And it, it, so it's a slightly woolly word as to what it is. But uh, yeah. um, but certainly, I, uh, uh, you know, there, there are aspects of maths that, uh, you know, traumatised people at school because they had such yes. a bad time of it and they could never see the point and they never saw the joy. It was like they were being taught, taught all the detail yes. without ever seeing the big picture. And the music equivalent of that would be, imagine if all you ever did with music is practice your scales and arpeggios and no one ever actually played you a tune 
to know you know where this is all going and uh, that's a great analogy yeah yeah um i read somewhere and i think it might have been in fact on your website and one of your blogs that um half of the uk's working age adult population have got numerous skills of of roughly what you expect to get from an 11 an 11 year old leaving school Yes. Why do you think that is? Because that's 50% of the population. That's enormous. It is. Uh, I think the more alarming thing is that uh, the ma- the vast majority of 10, 11-year-olds do have the numeracy expected of a primary school child. In other words, what that statistic suggests is people get worse by the time they leave school. They're actually less numerate than they were when they were 10, 11, I mean, yeah. which is shocking. And why do I think that is? Um, I think it's complicated but uh, I personally think that uh, there's so much focus is spent on passing GCSE exams, much of which is material that's not about numeracy. It's about more abstract stuff that some of the some of the everyday numeracy elements sort of get almost pushed to one side. There's not as much focus on that. And in any case, you can give up maths at the age of 16 entirely. And therefore, yeah. by the time you leave school at 18, you might have been quite good when you were 16, but you've kind of not done a percentage since. And yeah. so just when you actually need it and when you're encountering a stage of life where suddenly there is a point to understanding, uh, you know, fractions and ratios and percentages, you're having to, to work things out for yourself. You're having to do taxes and, and, and uh, repay loans and all this kind of thing suddenly those tools that you you've become rusty with so i think it's it's a complicated uh uh issue but uh it doesn't help that we are so obsessed with exams uh and uh, and rather less obsessed with just the bigger picture of when am i going to need this and giving a context and making the whole experience enjoyable yeah, I know. I know, I, I know when um, I, mean, I was at the sort of crossover change when just before calculators came out. So, you know, I, I was taught long division and, and everything else. And um, I was able to write it all out and work out quite complicated numbers. And then, of course, calculators came in mm. and you didn't really need to have to to do it that old way. And, and I think for, for me, a lot of that stuff goes. It's just gone. So I just rely on my calculator. What, what's your thought on calculators? Well, I, I love them. I use them. I, I Actually, I don't use a calculator very often. I use a spreadsheet because who wants to just oh, yeah. turn through all of that stuff? So I say that because I also think uh, what a wonderful tool it is to not need a calculator many circumstances. So I tend not to use a calculator. I tend to do things in my head. Yeah, or yeah. quickly on a back of paper because it's a faff to get your phone out, switch it on, get into calculator mode. You know, um, and and I I like you was my education was a transition from non calculator to calculator, um, and I think the problem it becomes when you become utterly dependent on the calculator um, and uh, lose the ability to work things out in your head and. and uh, uh, or 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 on a on a scrap of paper because ultimately the purpose of of being able to work it out yourself is to check that the calculator is not giving you the wrong answer because yeah. a fat finger can get the decimal place in the wrong place or you put in an extra zero or whatever so how do you know if that answer is right or not that's when you really need to be able to work things out um so uh so they have been a mixed mixed blessing and i think um 
I, I, I think it's good that there are, you know, in school there are still exams that say, you know, there's a non-calculated paper and a calculated paper, but I would still love to see an encouragement of the kind of doing little exercises to just keep your brain sharp like yes. countdown, countdown classically has that round um, where you use numbers to get to a target number, and I think one of the losses in the UK has been uh, the fact that countdown used to be this sort of puzzle program beloved by millions on at four o'clock in the afternoon, so kids would get home from school and watch it, and therefore you know keep their brain cells going. Now it's on at different times. It's aimed at the retired population. And uh, and there's rather less exposure to that sort of uh, that sort of little mental test yeah. that that just keeps your brain sharp. Yeah, I, th- I think we, we mentioned before um, before the show that that for me, sort of doing the tables was is is, is like a, almost like an awakening in mm. the morning sometimes. And I used to mm. go on a long a long drive and sort of doing the thirteen times table or the seventeen yeah. times table cer- certainly woke me up. So I think you're right. I, th- I think the what you said about keeping your brain alive is it's it's a good thing to do. Mm. Um, I'd like to sort of talk a bit more or, or start talking about maths itself and, and some of the applied stuff. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm always interested in is the link between mathematics and everyday life. So, mm. for example, probability. I mean, you know, we, we have this thing, don't we, where everything seems to happen in threes. You know, you've got buses coming in threes, like like your title of your book, mm. um, bad luck you know oh yeah I've, I've had three lips bad luck that's my quota now mm. um and then politicians tend to hammer home points in threes as well yes um what's the link between mathematics and, and this number three is there, is there anything specific that we should know about that yes i think there's lots of psychological connection <laughs> number three so uh so i think um i mean the most basic interesting thing about three is it's the first time you establish a patterns so there are many jokes that are structured around three because you say you know a guy walks into a bar and does x then another guy walks into the bar and does y you immediately see all right this is about guys walking into a bar and it's happened twice so you're now ready for the third one uh and when something happens with the third one and in in a joke the third one you know does something different and you laugh because you've been set up but it's like three's the first time you can have had a pattern and then it breaks because two, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's, there's just not enough. So it, it that's, uh, it's the same with politicians, you know, mention politicians, why three, because it's a rhetorical uh, thing to say, we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in the sky. You're just ready for that third one. And the third yeah. one really makes the point and you can go in, you know, various directions with what that third one is. So it, that is a psychological one. And, and in a way, the buses one is a psychological one, too, because why do buses come in threes? Well, the truth is they don't come in threes. Uh, I live in South London and, uh, you know, lots of buses around here. You wait for ages and uh, a bus comes and there's often a second bus with it. Um, and sometimes there's a third, sometimes there's a fourth. But you don't really notice the instances where there are two and four you just remember that everyone says they come in threes so when you see them come in threes it reinforces that um notion you've or you know had suggested to you so it there's an element of i'm, I'm sure there's a good word for it and i can't remember what it is it's a kind of selective bias or whatever that we yeah. notice threes when they happen and we don't notice when they don't happen so um i don't think 
in that respect, there's necessarily anything particularly special about threes in many circumstances. You know, bad luck does sometimes happen in threes, but sometimes it doesn't. And I bet by the law of averages, it comes out at about the expected number of times that bad luck happens in ones, twos, threes and fours and so on. So it's a sort of urban myth. I, I, it is a urban myth. I remember when, I mean, a, a whole book, you know, to think we had a best-selling book, Why Do Buses Come in Threes, based on um, uh, a notion that we helped to reinforce with the title of that book. But I spoke to London Transport at the time and says, do they really? And the guy saying, eh, they kind of come in twos. On long, longer bus routes, they come in threes because yeah. there's a chance for the third one to catch up the first two. Uh, uh, but on very long bus routes, they come in fours. Um, so, and these days actually there's technology to space buses out. So they don't come in twos and threes nearly as often as they used to, I am told. Oh, Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, well, when it's a sort of segue me, when we're talking about transport, there's a segue into something that I've always found quite interesting, which is you're in, you're on the motorway, the Mm. traffic slows down, Mm. the three lanes of traffic. Um, and you think to yourself, well, shall I stay in the lane I'm in now or shall (laughs) I dodge in and out? Um, I guess it is it, it it is linked to mathematics because there's you know numbers of cars and speeds. Yes. Has any is there any evidence to suggest that it's either best to stay in the lane you're in or or to switch the switch to the lane that appears faster? Yeah, yes. I think it has been studied quite a lot. I mean, the great thing is these days, you know, traffic consultants, you know, uh, will will devise all sorts of simulations. You can see what's happening. You can really understand the dynamics and the flow of cars on a motorway. Yeah. Uh, and often the stop starting is happening because of a lane closure and there's a bit of game theory there as to do I push it? You know, when do I stick? and When do I twist? Uh, sometimes it's just the sheer weight of traffic causes stoppages and starts ghost jams, which are um, not, you know, um, uh, due to anything at all other than weight of traffic. Um, yeah. And in terms of whether you should switch or not, uh, I think the evidence is that almost always there is no point because it's uh, it, there is you know you simply notice that sometimes the cars on your left or right are going faster than you, but yes. and you don't notice so much when you're going faster than them. Yeah. Uh, so and of course the very act of moving into the other lane makes it worse for everyone. So even if yes. you gained a little bit more, the net yeah. result for everyone is worse and and. It is actually a part of maths that really interests me. This the notion of of game theory and uh, nice or nasty behaviour, and how although it might pay the individual relative to others to be nasty, as a society, it's yeah. better to be nice. And there's loads yeah. of you know analysis has been done on on strategies for how to behave as a responsible citizen, um, yeah. uh, which basically say the math says be nice but don't be yes. so nice that you let other people walk over you that's interesting i mean, I, I know i can see how that's changed in my life and when i first learned to drive it was different to when my daughters learned where they were taught to let traffic flow let people in you know on motorways and things like that which mm. in the past would have been done just to be polite but they're actually taught that now which mm. which is quite interesting mm. and the other the other thing i've noticed and and it, it i find it really fascinating that the link between you know, real practical applications and maths. But I always remember um, traveling on the M62, going to various meetings and things. And, and the M62, as you probably know, is a very, very busy motorway. Mm. Lots of holdups and stuff like that. But I remember they were doing some road works and they reduced the, the speed to 50 mm. and everything flowed. Mm. And I think, we, you know, you got to your destination faster than what you would have done had you had no speed limit. 
Yes, they, they, it is one of those lovely counterintuitive uh, things that because when you're going fast, you need a greater stopping speed. So when someone breaks, you, you know, you break faster. Uh, and it, so ironically, going a faster speed limit can lead to, to bigger uh, jams than, than steady speed. And it's to do with the relative, um, you know, your, your ability to stop quickly when you yeah. see something in front of you. Um, no, it's fascinating. They did something similar on the London Underground a few years ago where they said uh, it's better to just get on the escalator and stand still on both the left and the right-hand side than to walk up the left, which is, you know, you always felt like walking up the left has got to be better because you're speeding things up, but you yeah. weren't. Again, exactly the same as on motorways. It's the rate at which you respond to the person in front of you stopping and starting as they walk up the escalator so um when it's really busy on the london underground they sometimes tell you to stop walking at all something else i've been interested in is is i know some of our listeners will be um predicting a lottery result and doing a lottery numbers and things like that do you have any tips for people are there there any little secrets perhaps you might let, let us in on uh, yes. Well, of course, the, the, the number one thing is that it is completely random uh, and that on average, if you spend a pound on the lottery, you expect to get 50p back. So as a, as a basic mathematical rule, do not expect, expect to get a net uh, return from entering the lottery. You are, it is designed to lose you money because it's designed to raise money. So but um, now the classic thing with the lottery is that there's no such thing as lucky numbers or whatever. All numbers are equally likely to come up. It is just as likely that one, two, three, four, five, six will come up in the draw next week as, you know, six numbers that appear random, 7, 23, 29, 32, etc. Um, uh, and you might think, well, but one, two, three, four, five, six never comes up. And that's true. And nor does those other numbers that I just gave. They're, they're just both equally unlikely. Um but of course, if you do win, you want to have chosen numbers that no one else chose. So picking numbers with a nice pattern, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, or picking all your numbers less than 31 are not a good idea because that's what a lot of other people do. People tend still, despite decades of lotteries and knowing about this, people will choose lucky numbers for them, which are dates and the dates uh, there's only 31 days maximum in a month so they'll pick numbers from 1 to 31 so those numbers higher are rather chosen rather less of the time i think though the the, the combination that you should not pick is 1 2 3 4 5 6 because that is one of the most popular because lots of smart alex say no one else would think of this it's just as likely and the day it comes up there'll be a hundred thousand people winning each of whom have to share the jackpot between them and the idea is you want to pick numbers that no one else picks. Now, there is a, there's been a, a recent update to all this, and I don't, haven't looked it, into it in any detail, but it, it turns out that there is, mathematicians have actually worked out a sort of cyclic combination of numbers to pick that, you know, with, with a certain number of lottery tickets you buy, you are guaranteed that one of them will win you a prize in the lottery it won't be the jackpot but it will win no. you one of the prizes and it's it's quite a fascinating breakthrough after all this time that someone said there is a way of guaranteeing a win but ultimately what does a win mean it means you get more money back than you have paid but if you pay for lots of tickets 
you pay yeah. 50 quid for tickets and you win 25 pounds yes you have won but you've still lost on average so it it's not you know those people who thought at last we've cracked it well, there is no yeah. way of cracking the the, no. the the lottery but but they have actually made a, a an intriguing breakthrough that says at least you can feel i want something back yeah so so it's um there's no magic to it it's just a case of um using a bit of logic in terms of um not choosing numbers that you think everybody else would choose exactly yeah yeah that's interesting um can you tell us a bit about your keynote speaking? And I know that I, I did read something about, which I found quite intriguing, that, you, you know, you, you do some games, and, and in particular, the black and white hat game. <laughs> so I um, so I do a lot of speaking, you know, the majority of talks that I do are probably for teenagers, and I do a certain amount for teachers, teacher conferences, and so on. Very, very rarely do I do, uh, I do talks for a more general public audience. Um but whatever I do talks on, whatever age group, it's very much about the fun side of maths and games is a very important part of it and puzzles too yeah. can be really interesting. Um, so, they, yeah, uh, I mean, one of, one of the shows that we did, you know, I, I run this, this programme called Maths Inspiration. These are theatre-based lecture shows for older teenagers. We'll have 500 to 1,000 in an audience uh, at a... London West End Theatre or the Bristol Hippodrome or whatever. So these are these are uh, big shows, and that's yeah. so that's uh, you, you use the word keynote. Those are not keynote talks. Those are engaging interactive lectures because kids don't want to yes. hear a keynote, uh, or you've got to be very very charismatic to get away with just talking at them. Um, but yes, w- you mentioned the black and white hat puzzle. Um, I've used that a few times of one of many things that I do. Uh, the idea, I mean, it's, it's a lovely one because uh, you can watch it in real time, people's logic working. You get two volunteers on stage and say, right, I've got a, got a bag here and it contains, hidden away, uh, two black hats and one white hat. Um, I get two teenagers sat facing each other on stage, on a, sitting on a, a, a stool, uh, and then coming from behind so they can't see it, put a hat on one of them and then go around behind the other one, put a hat on them. So each of them can see what the other person's wearing, but they can't see what the zone is on their own head. And yeah. each of them are looking and can see a black hat on the other person. But I say to them, oh, you know, you're not allowed to speak, but I say, right, I now want you to deduce logically what colour hat you are wearing. So there are two black hats and one hat, one white hat. They don't know I've kept the white hat in the bag. Now, what the the logic books say and what happens in reality are different things. Because what happens in reality is these two will sit there looking and they, they can see a black hat, but they think, right, well, mine could be black or white. And that's as yes. far as it goes. And then when I push them, they'll sometimes say, well, by the law of probability, I think it's... Uh, mine's gonna be white because I can see a black, which has kind of spoiled it because they've then said, you know, what they can see on the other one and so on. So I try and discourage yeah. them from saying anything, but I, I say this is not about chance, it's about pure logic. Very, very occasionally they make the correct deduction that they've been sitting there gazing at their opponent for 30 seconds. I think, well, hang on a sec. If my opponent was, you know, has got any wits about them, if I'm wearing a white hat, 
There's only one white hat. So they'll know immediately that they're wearing a black hat. So why have they not said that? The <laughs> only reason that, because they're not stupid, they're, you know, the bright people in this audience, the only reason they've not said that is because I must be wearing a black hat or they'd have said something. That's what should happen. It almost never happens. You need to prompt them. And um, so it's a lovely way of sort of saying sometimes yeah. you deduce things. It's like a Sherlock Holmes, the uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, um, which was a, a, a story in which the clue was the fact that a dog didn't bark um, uh, when dogs normally bark. So no information is sometimes equally valuable as valuable as information so um yeah that's just one little example um you know you can relate it then that little experience they've had you can relate to other experiences in life where you deduce what's going on i will tell you actually just as a little aside to that i once did that very same puzzle with an adult audience um at the civil service college when i was running a course for civil servants way back in the 1990s and one of the delegates was a woman who had lost her sight at as a child so you know she'd come along as a uh, as a blind delegate and you couldn't make it up and this is this genuinely happened i had these two guys sitting there looking at each other saying i can't work out what's on my head and the woman uh raised her hand and said i think i can tell you what they're both wearing they're both wearing black hats because if one of them had had a white hat uh then we would have heard something by now just remarkable so sometimes the very deprivation of being able to see helped her to think purely logically whilst everyone else was completely fuzzed about well they can see so therefore you know uh they can see a black you know they were overthinking it Uh, that was a lovely example sometimes you know it, it can help to not have all of the clutter. Of, yeah, almost almost less is more. The the fact exa- that, exactly. You know, one less sense and actually yeah. focused her mind on, on other stuff. That, yeah, that's, exactly. that's, that's an incredible story. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you, you mentioned, obviously, a lot of the work is with teenagers with um, the organisation Maths Inspiration, but you yeah. also do work with adults as well. How does, how do, is that to people who are involved in maths at work? How, how does uh, that work? Well, yeah, um, the, the, the interesting thing with adults is it's very hard to reach out. Once they've left school, the notion yeah. of going to something that's to do with maths, they're either already into maths or, you know, they're a very reluctant audience member. You know, one of my, one of the most effective ways of reaching a general adult audience is through their children. So if I go into a primary school and do a maths and magic talk for, for, seven eight-year-olds they bring their parents along the real audience is the parents but of course it's all done via the children so yes um but uh, on those occasions when i do do adult talks um i mean i love doing it anything from the university of the third age i've done lots of talks for, for there where you get you know some older members of the community who love being reminded of some aspects of maths um and keep their brain sharp i've done a couple of more general so there's a guy called robin ince who's quite well known in the circuit of doing uh popular science stuff and uh big nerdy uh events in big theaters he does a lot with uh brian cox who is of course very famous oh yes um so i've done a couple of events for 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 him and events like that where you're talking to an what is actually there is a, a surprisingly large nerdy adult audience in the country who have discovered themselves you know since the age of youtube they discovered that hey wow there's millions of us uh, yeah. and they turn out by the thousand to to events around the country so 
So I do a little bit of that, but that means you're preaching to the converted in a way, which is lovely. They'll laugh yeah. at nerdy jokes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reaching general public, the, 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 the most the most effective way of reaching general public, apart from the ways I've said, is I do quite a lot of stuff on radio. There's a radio programme called More or Less with Tim Harford, which... Oh, on Radio 4. Podcast, on Radio 4, and it's a podcast too. Yes. That reaches a lot of people worldwide, and I've been on that many times, and that's wonderful because... I'm talking with someone who's on my side, but we're talking about topics that reach a far wider um, audience. So that's, that's good. And it's really, you know, much of that is about putting maths and statistics in context and making sense of it and so on. People uh, listening to numbers being properly pulled apart when politicians are being dishonest with us, uh, you know, someone needs to call it. So um, so that's mm. there's a lot of that. Um, uh, and I do an element of just campaigning for better numeracy and support of, of better numeracy uh, as well. So um, I'm, I'm more than happy to be part of the, the lobby group for that kind of thing. And um, uh, uh, I will be going to one of the party conferences on a panel in the autumn of 2023. So oh, right. um, uh, that's, uh, that's good to be reaching that sort of world as well. Well, let's hope they can they can sort their numbers out. Uh, yeah, Wh- whoever. Uh, um, for any adult listeners that are interested in rediscovering their math skills, you mentioned that you do quite a bit of stuff for, with adults as well. Mm-hmm. Well, they just want to improve their maths and they mm-hmm. find it interesting again after mm-hmm. years of neglect. What what advice would you give them? Um, it depends what level they think they're at if they're from discomfort to actually i'm quite good at math but i just want to get back more into it so at the more basic level a sense of oh, i feel not confident in my maths i want to know if I'm, am i any good there is a charity called national numeracy who have a numeracy test you can just go in and see how you get on you might discover actually i'm, I'm much better than i thought because i can do yeah. all these questions uh, and that's a nice anonymous way of getting in no one's checking there's loads of stuff on youtube uh, fantastically engaging stuff. There's a there's a channel called Numberphile, which is massively worldwide popular, which uh, just gets people on talking about incredibly nerdy mathematical ideas, but in a charming way. They're sort of 10, 12-minute videos very often. Um, there are uh, tons of, well, uh, as well as the more or less podcast, which I'd recommend, uh, the there are loads of books and if i was suggesting one of my books i would say a book i wrote two or three years ago get the paperback it's called uh, maths on the back of an envelope yeah about the maths of everyday life and the numeracy and how to work things out in your head everything we were talking about calculators and and when you don't need a calculator and so on so i yes i think that one's good um and maybe get back into doing number puzzles either the new scientist weekly puzzle or just more routine ones that you know the the number equivalent of wordle really little exercises that just stretch your mind and get you playing with numbers all of those things are are great but there's just so many resources out there now is too much to choose from yeah and um, would you include sudoku in that uh yeah yeah absolutely yeah, i mean it's yeah. that's logical reasoning rather than maths arguably yeah, it's deduction yeah. you know you could replace all those numbers with letters and it'd be the same problem but 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 yes uh, 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 puzzles are good and different puzzles you know the thing about sudoku is that uh it becomes a routine so in a way you're no longer stretching your brain because you kind of know what to expect or yes. you're stretching the same bit of your brain so it might yeah. be a bad idea to do a different puzzle to stretch 
another part of your brain. Going on from that, with particularly with adults, older adults, um, is there any evidence that um, using maths and, and getting actively involved in maths can sort of prolong cognitive decline? I, I don't. I can't point to any specific study, but I've heard it said so often. I am sure it is true that uh, yes, that that you know, mental exercise is in some ways as valuable as physical exercise in, yes. uh, in um, you know, keeping your brain active it, it, it is good and uh, it's not going to do any harm and, no, and, and no. It's, bound to, it's bound to be helpful. Keep you sharp as, as long as possible. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned your, uh, your book, you've got a new book coming out. Mm. Um, could you just tell us a bit about that? And when it's, it's out in October, isn't it? Yes. So I, uh, I edit the weekly puzzle column math they're sort of mathematical logical puzzles in a magazine called new scientist uh so my life's gone full circle because i was doing that way back in my teens as well yeah. uh, so this we, we call the column head scratchers and uh, uh, my colleague brian hobbs and i have compiled our favorite 70 puzzles from the column and uh it's called head scratchers and uh, yeah there's, there's some uh really hard puzzles in there there's some uh, much easier ones in there as well but if you're like me you might quite like puzzles not just for looking at the puzzle but reading the answer as well you know i've spent yes. five minutes on this okay i want to see the back so actually what uh we tried to do with this book is make the the solutions bit at least as interesting as the puzzles with lots of chat and this is what you know here's the math behind it and here's other ideas that are related to this so it's a very accessible oh so so if you, if you Sorry, sorry to interrupt. So, if, so if you're struggling with it, with it, you can then read about how you should approach it. Perhaps. Yeah, well, there's, there is a hints section, but there's also then if you just can't do it, you just go to the, you know, you read the solution and but discover the related ideas behind it, the backstory, where the puzzle came from, what its history is, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's yeah. quite a chatty, friendly book because what what I don't what I don't like about puzzles or you know can be a problem with maths too is a i've got a question i know the answer you don't i'm clever you're not you know that's quite intimidating so this is a more have a go at this and if you can't do it you know here's the surprising solution isn't that interesting and isn't it interesting some of the related ideas to that so um yes do do you do you find you're good at crosswords as well i know it's Uh, not to do with maths but are you just as good with crosswords uh, no i'm not just as good with crosswords (laughs) i um, i'm okay at crosswords um, I do do Wordle every day. I've got yes, I do. Sucked in. It's just a nice. It's become a bit of a breakfast routine in our house, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another one called Connections, which the New York Times introduced, which is very similar to what's been uh, Victoria Corrin's program for, for a long time. But uh, but it's a, yeah. So these little daily workouts are fun. But yeah, I'm I'm quite a wordy person. I'm more a numbery person, but you know, there's no rule that says you have to be one and not the other. Have you got any any other projects, any new projects coming up at all, Rob? I have actually. I've got a I've got another book coming out uh in the spring. You wait for ages for a book and then two come all at once. <laughs> but um this is a well I I've loved it as a project. Uh, it's a book about maths and Shakespeare and the amazing connections that I never thought there would be any. It started off as a bit of a joke and it's ended up as a, a, a an incredible serendipitous journey to discover just how Shakespeare's life was. It, not only is there loads of maths of an interesting kind in his plays, but he was surrounded by a world that was 
mathematically fascinating. So I'm drawing together, talk about words and numbers, I'm bringing together those two worlds and history as well, which is one of my other favourite pursuits in life. So watch out for next. Oh, I will. That sounds spring of 2024. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maths and Shakespeare. I will be. Um, oh, the two together. Yeah, yeah. bringing them together. Yeah. So. Oh, that sounds that spring 2024. That's, that yeah. sounds really exciting. Now, um, just from a selfish point of view, but I do think listeners would would enjoy hearing this. One last question I've got. Mm. Well, not not so much a question, but I've I was, and it might have even been on that Radio Four program that you mentioned mm. um, the Fibonacci sequence, mm. and and it's relation to nature and numbers i find absolutely i mean it's not mystical i don't think although it could be yeah um, but I, I i find it absolutely fascinating are you able just to quickly um run through what that is please for listeners yeah um so i'm go- i'm just going to start a little sequence of number you know, if i went one two three four five what comes next you'd say six but if i go one one two three five so we've had one one two three five what comes next and it's quite hard actually without it seeing it written down but i'll tell you what comes next what comes next is eight each number that comes next is the previous two added together so one and one makes two one and two makes three two and three makes five you might think okay that's fine but so what and it turns out that this this sequence is known as the fibonacci sequence it was originally attributed to a story about rabbit breeding and the, this pattern of numbers came from the way that you know rabbits happen to breed but but more importantly this this sequence also turns up a, a lot in nature and at its most uh common it's the number of petals uh on a flower will tend to be a fibonacci number um so five is a really common number of petals much more common than four or six on a flower and if you take an apple and uh, uh cut it along its equator, which is not the normal where we cut an apple no. in half, you see a little pentagon. There's five seeds in a little star, which that's a Fibonacci number. And the reason why it's there is wonderfully subtle uh, thing to do with the connection between those numbers and something called the golden ratio, which is a particular um, you know, r- r- proportion found that you can apply in a rectangle or whatever has, has a certain mathematical property that makes it more likely to crop up in nature. I won't attempt to summarize how that connection happens, but amazing that it does. And um, so, yes, Fibonacci sequence is very beautiful. There is some pseudoscience associated as well, because people do sometimes say, well, you know, the golden ratio, which is related to it, is the most natural and beautiful shape you can find that that uh, the Greeks use it and so on. And much of that is not true. The Greeks didn't use it, you know, and a lot of a lot of rectangles are beautiful or deemed to be beautiful that are not golden rectangles. But still, there is lots of stuff that is amazingly cool about it. So, of course, it's a side of maths we've not really talked about until now in this, you know, all of this episode is, is the side of maths that's just beautiful and mystical and, 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 and fascinating in its own right. Um, and actually, you know, to just one other thing on the Fibonacci sequence, you think, well, yeah, but I'd love to have a practical application for it. Amazingly, yeah. Fibonacci numbers are a great way of converting miles to kilometers and vice versa because oh, right. um, so 8 and 13 are two Fibonacci numbers. Well, if you drive 13 kilometers, how long is that? That's eight miles, almost precisely. Um, wow. uh, uh, what, what's five miles? It's eight kilometers. So you just have to go the next Fibonacci number up from where you are to turn miles into kilometers 
And that works all, all the way all the way into infin- infinity. All the way to infinity. In fact, the further up wow. you go, the closer it gets to being exactly right. It's better than the, the technique I was taught, which was multiply by eight and divide by five, which yeah. is multiplied by 1.6, which is... So that's not exactly what a mile is to a kilometre. The golden ratio is closer to the 1.61, whatever it is, that's the actual conversion from miles to kilometre. So it's a bizarre thing. So, you know, you're, you're driving through Paris and you see 21 kilometres, you think, well, good, that's 13 miles, almost exactly. But, of course, if it's 22 kilometres, that's not a Fibonacci number. So you have to say to your other half, give me one one kilometre and I'll be able to tell you exactly what that is in miles. But until then, I don't yeah. know. So there we are. Yeah. 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 That is a coincidence, but it's a lovely yeah. link between oh. beautiful maths and real everyday maths. Oh, well, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, that sort of, um, when I heard it a couple of years ago, I, I thought it was quite fascinating. I think yeah. listeners will too. Um, so if, it, if we've got any um, either companies or organisations that want to contact you to perhaps do a talk and that, where, where, should they, where should they reach you, Rob? They should just go to my website, which is uh, Rob Easterway, uh, all one word, dot com. And uh, I can be contacted through there. I'm on Twitter, as it used to be called as well. Um, so I can always be tweeted. Uh, so there are various ways of getting hold of me if anyone wants to. I'm always oh. happy to hear from anyone. Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. Um, Rob, this has been a really fascinating conversation. You've really brought maths alive. Um, and I, I think our, our listeners will have really enjoyed that. And it's, oh, well, it's it's really interesting to learn more about the work that you do. And, and this bit about rediscovering maths as an adult, I, I found particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look forward to reading new books. So my guest today has been Rob Easterway. Rob is Director of Maths Inspiration, and his new book is coming out in October. You can find a link to Rob's website on the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show, Rob. Thank you. been listening to undercurrent stories i hope you've enjoyed this episode please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family and if you have 60 seconds i will be most grateful if you would please rate and review to hear more episodes please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com if you leave your email in the link we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released also check out our social media links details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best.